145, and that can be found on the Blue Church Bibles on page 631. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Good morning, everyone. Let's just pray once more as we open God's word together. Father God, we praise you that you want to speak to us and you say that we want to hear what you have to say please grant us higher thoughts of you so that our praise of you might grow and we ask this in the name of jesus and to his glory amen well before um heather and i lived in birmingham we had some friends had a little girl, I think she was about five. And one day, um, this family went to a concert, um, a Bruce Springsteen concert. And the little girl was very excited. That was a big day out. Um, and she'd been learning all the words of the songs. Then he had to sing along, learning the tunes. She even made the little homemade sign. And they got right to the front of this concert. Um, and the little girl was singing along with the words, really enjoying it, holding up a little sign. And the sign said, Bruce, please can I sing with you? In, I've forgotten what the name of the song is. And so when it got to that song, he saw the sign and he invited her up onto the stage. I think he might even have picked her up, put her on his shoulders. Now, as she was singing to the mic, it was very cute. But it wasn't her song. It wasn't written for her. She couldn't really do it justice. Like if you'd been at that concert and she was the one doing the whole set, you'd have been a bit annoyed. You'd feel shortchanged. It needed him singing it along with her to make it right. But for a few minutes, there she was, sitting on Bruce Springsteen's shoulders, singing his song along with him. Now, I've got a bit of a confession. 
I haven't got on well with this psalm for most of this week. Not sure preachers are meant to say that. I have found it difficult to get into it. It's felt like I've been singing somebody else's song. If you look just under where it says Psalm 145, it says a psalm of praise. Might surprise you to know this is the only psalm at all that has psalm of praise in its title. And praise just means saying something's good. So you enjoy a game of sport or you have a nice meal or a nice day out. You'll praise it. You'll say something good about it. You'll say how good it was. This is a psalm about praising God, about declaring his goodness. But read verses 1 and 2 with me. Maybe you'll feel maybe some of that sense of disconnect that I had. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. And I read that and I think, I don't do that. Like, yeah, I can learn the words, I can sing the tune, but do I do that? Do I praise God that much all the time, every day? I might be, there are lots of things that I say good things about. I might, you know, be even evangelistic about church and how good it is to have Christian family. And I might be evangelistic about bikes, talking about bikes, I'll talk for ages. But praising God? Something a little, gets a little bit stuck there. I don't praise God every day. Now we've been doing this series, as Jonathan said, songs to make your heart sing. We're meant to be joyful about God. And is it that my thoughts of God are too small? Do I not think he's worthy of being praised? Well, that's part of it, and we'll come on to that. But there's more here. This psalm just feels too big for me. Verse 1 or 2, he doesn't just say, I'll praise God every day. He says forever and ever. He says it twice. I can't. I, I can't do that. That's eternal in a way that I'm not on my own. And as you go on in the psalm, you find there are ways in which the psalm just feels too big. If, if, if you know your opera, if Springsteen's not your thing, if you're into opera, the song Ness and Dorma. Like, I, I can learn the words, I can learn the tune, but I'm not Pavarotti. You need Pavarotti to sing it properly. I can't fill those shoes. If you read this psalm, you feel like it doesn't, you just struggle to sing along with it. Again, look back at just under Psalm 145, a psalm of praise of David. This is King David, King of Israel, writing, singing this psalm. And often we pick up the psalms and we think, well, this is my song, I sing this. And there's something true there, and there's lots you can get out of the psalms, reading them that way. But in the Old Testament, when you see the word king, you don't automatically go, oh, that's me. You almost always go, that's Jesus. This psalm makes much more sense when you realize it's his solo. You can sing it in a way, but he sings it better. And it only makes sense when you sing along with him. So this psalm is going to do two things for us. Firstly, it's going to give us reasons to praise God, to get us singing, to give us bigger thoughts so that we want to declare his praise. But it's going to show us how Jesus sings this song. And how we can only sing it. Because he brings us into it. And I hope that by the end you'll be able to see yourself sitting on Jesus' shoulders. And singing this psalm with him. So there are four sections in the psalm. They're headed by the Lord is or something similar. And the first two are about who God is. And these are all about making us see how God is way bigger. Way more glorious than we think. Here's the first one. Who God is unfathomable greatness and I think it'll be on the 
slides if you want to follow along. Verses 3 to 7. Unfathomable greatness. Starts the section. David says, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He wants to see God's greatness. And to praise him. And to do that, he draws attention to things that God has done. Verse 4, his works. Verse 4, his mighty acts. Verse 5, his mighty works, his wonderful works. Verse 6, his great deeds, his awesome works or terrible works. Now I just want us to catch the mood of these verses. Um, You might see in a little footnote, this is an acrostic psalm. That means a psalm, um, a poem that the eighth line begins with a different letter of the alphabet. Now, I don't know if you've ever written one of those or tried to. It's really difficult. Like A, B, C. Okay, that's not too bad. I've got lots of words with A, B, C. You get to J and K, you realize jam doesn't fit in that many poems. Then you get to Q, and unless you're a Scrabble master, you're in trouble. Get to X. Unless you're writing about X-rays and xylophones, you're stuck. Psalmist is working hard to pull all of language together to praise God. There's meant to be a wideness here that we're seeing. And then if you look at who's speaking, you get the same effect. In verses 1 to 3, of a solo, it's just David, the psalmist. Then verses 4 to 9, he talks about generations praising God and talking to one another. And then verse 10 onwards, it's all creation, all of God's works. There's this kind of rising volume as different people join in. And in verse 6, that word we just saw, awesome deeds. Or if you've got a different translation, it might be fearful or terrible. Now, this word awesome, it's completely overused. And I'm, I'm guilty of this. I'll say things like, oh, that game was awesome. That hairstyle is awesome. Um, one of our ministry trainees, Ellie, this week brought a cake into the office. And I th- I'm pretty sure I said to her, Ellie, that cake was awesome. But it wasn't. It was a really good cake. It was lovely. It was mouth-watering. It was delicious. So many good things to say. But at no point did I feel overwhelmed by the cake. At no point was it awe-inspiring. When something's awesome, it doesn't mean you're terrified, but it means there's just a sense of something between joy and being scared of it. There's a power there. My wife, Heather, is a bit of a storm chaser. Loves lightning storms. Once when we were on holiday... Uh, we just arrived at the house we were going to, and there was a storm coming in over the sea. And most sensible people just then, you know, just kind of settle down and enjoy the evening in. No, no, we went out in the car to drive down to the beach so we could sit in the car. We were safe, but we could see the storm coming in over the sea. And even though you're safe, it's, it's exhilarating, it's awe-inspiring. Or if you've been to Niagara Falls in America, like I did do when I was young, you can go in a tunnel behind the falls... And see millions of tons of water crashing down in front of you. And you're behind the barrier, you're safe. But still, it gets your heart going. It's awe-inspiring. That's the feeling we're meant to feel in these verses. Not just to know that God is great, but to feel that. To look at his works and see the glory of his majesty. To look at his works in creation. The challenger deep, which is so deep under the sea that there's, I don't think there's still any submarine that can withstand the pressure down there. Or the awesome power of a volcanic eruption. Or look out in space and you see neutron stars that are about tiny, about the size of Birmingham, but they weigh more than our sun. And then you look at the tiny scale of God's works, the intricacy of a butterfly's wing, the mysterious world of particles and string theory, 
And you look at the, the questions that we just don't have any idea about. Where did the universe come from? How did it come into being? What is dark matter? These things are made for God's glory. They're all his works, reflecting his glory, showing his awesome power, silently shouting, I was made by God. David says, look at those things. But not just works of creation. I'm pretty sure David's got in mind works of redemption, of saving. I'm pretty sure in his mind he's got the exodus when God's people were in Egypt and they cried out to God for rescue from slavery. And he sent Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And so God sent plagues, locusts to devour everything. To the, the Nile, which the Egyptians pretty much worshipped and turned it to blood. How there was darkness. How there was even death. And then Pharaoh lets the people go and then he changes his mind and chases after them. And so God parts the sea so his people can walk through. And Pharaoh tries to chase them and God brings the water crashing back down over their heads. Terrifying, awe-inspiring works. And we can add, as we look at the Bible, God's work engineering all of history to the point where his, his son comes onto the stage as a man and does incredible things makes the blind see, binds evil spirits. How he's in a boat with his disciples. The disciples are terrified because the storm is going to drown them all and Jesus just stands up and he says, be still. And it's still. And the disciples, they're even more afraid. Who is this? Who has that kind of awe-inspiring power? And then Jesus' greatest work is he dies on the cross. And the earth shakes and the sun doesn't shine. And then three days later, the stone is rolled away and he's pulled up from death. And then you look forward as he's now at the right hand of the Father, coming back one day to judge and to bury death alive and to rule forever. David says when you see those things, it's awe-inspiring, such greatness, such unstoppable power and might. Why is he doing this? Why is he focusing us on God's works and creation and redemption? It's because our praise of God is tied to who our God is. If your God is that big, that's how big your praise will be. And maybe you might think, well, I haven't... This stuff that's going on in my life, I, I don't have time to praise God. Well, you need to look up and see how much greater and how much bigger and more, more glorious he is. Many of us start out as Christians... Um, with a sense of wonder, there's so much to be explored, so much to know about God. But then we feel like we get to the bottom of God's greatness and the praise just kind of dries up and it stops. Do you feel like that? David says, verse 3, it's unfathomable. When sailors wanted to know how deep water was, they'd let down a line with a weight on the end and then measure how long it was. David says there is no line long enough to get to the bottom of God's greatness. You could lock all of the scientists and philosophers and musicians and poets and astronomers and zoologists in a room for a thousand years. At the end of time, they would not get close to sounding out God's glory. Well, suppose we've got a little God, a sanitized God. We think we've got him figured out. And David wants to expand our view of God's greatness, to light a fire under it. So you think you've got God nailed? You think you've got to the bottom of how great God is? Then look around you. Look at the supernova. Look at the ocean trenches. Look at the cross. Look at the empty grave. Look, at, look forward and see Jesus coming back one day, lighting up the sky from one end to the other. You have not seen anything yet. 
If your praise of God is stuck, David says, throw away your little picture of God. He is a God of unfathomable greatness. He is worthy of praise. But he's not just great. He's good. This is the next thing he tells us, verses 8 to 13. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. We saw these verses two weeks ago. Same words. In Psalm 103. But it goes back. It goes back to Exodus 33. This is where Moses is worried. Because God's people have abandoned God. They've worshipped a metal cow instead of the true God. And Moses needs reassuring that God is going to be with them. That he's not going to abandon them. So he says to God, show me your glory. Big ask. And the Lord says, okay, well you can't see my face. No one can see my face and live. But tell you what, you stand here on this rock. I will cover you with my hand while I go past. And you'll see my back. And I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. See that? Moses says, show me your glory. And the Lord says, I will show you my goodness. You want to see my glory, my substance, my weight, my, my majesty? I will show you my goodness. And then as he goes past, he says these words, exactly as they are here. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. God's glory is not just his greatness. It is his goodness. Why is that significant? I think it's because as a rule, as people, as a human race, we don't deal well with power. If you're a Star Trek fan and you really know your older episodes, you might remember Jean-Luc Picard saying, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. At least one person has seen that. Good. I'm glad someone remembers that. (coughs) It wasn't actually his line. That was from Lord Acton, the 19th century British politician. He said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And then he said, great men are almost always bad men. The greater we get the worse we get. Isn't that true? Look at the news. Look at the trial of Harvey Weinstein. Used his power to seduce and abuse. Or Aung San Suu Kyi. In 1991, she was given a Nobel Peace Prize for her amazing work in Myanmar. And then 2016, as, as the leader of the country, she's condemned for human rights abuses, as apparently seems to do nothing to stop genocide in her country. Or think of President Trump. In the videos prior to the first election, that came out the things he was saying about women. And the whole thing with Stormy Daniels, in the impeachment. Not to take sides, but the question has been, does his character meet it? Can, can he have the goodness to match the greatness? Great men are almost always bad men. Even in the church, you might be aware that in the last couple of weeks, another church leader had to step down because of claims of bullying and spiritual abuse. It is desperately important that the the higher you get, the more great you are, the the better you are. That's not how we work. The greater we are, the worse we get. David says the Lord is not like that. He's not just great. He's good. Now, isn't that good news? Haven't you ever thought, what if God is evil? What if unrivaled, unchallengeable power would actually belong to someone who was bad? Thank God he's not like that. David says he's gracious. 
He's not harsh like us, not unforgiving. He's kind. He loves to show mercy. He doesn't treat us like we deserve. He's compassionate. He's not distant from us, unfeeling. He feels with us. He's moved by us, moved to help us. He's slow to anger. He's not provoked easily, and he's rich in love. And if you find that hard to visualize and picture, then look at Jesus in the Bible. Look at him in the Gospels. With unstoppable power and authority. He can say to a dead man in a tomb, come out. And he comes out. The kind of power that would destroy us if we had it. But he bears it with unparalleled humility and gentleness. If you've never seen that, then on your way out, can, you, can I encourage you pick up one of these? Pick up a gospel that tells you about Jesus' life. And just see his un paralleled unique attractive combination of power and humility that you do not see anywhere else and maybe you find that hard to believe you look at your life and you think well this doesn't seem to be characterized by the goodness of god well then we look at the cross and that's where we see it most clearly where jesus took in himself the anger of god at our failures our wrongness And some people react against that. Maybe you do and think, well, God punishes his son. That's awful. That's child abuse. That completely misunderstands what's going on. Jesus says, I am one with my father. Someone has said, Jesus is God's other self. At the cross, we see God absorbing in himself what we deserved. The greatest act of self-giving love there ever could be. Now, some of us... We hear about power and greatness, and that's negative. Because there were people who had power over us, and they misused it. God's not like that. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. Incorruptible goodness. And because of this, in verses 10 to 13, we have this picture of God's people, all his works praising him. And the key word in these verses is king, or kingdom. Four times you get that word kingdom. And just to kind of... Go into Geekland for a minute. It's an acrostic poem. Um, you don't get the letters in your Bible, but if you could see them, it would be M, L, and K for these three lines. That spells out Melech, the Hebrew word for king. Right at the middle of the psalm, you have the king. And the point is, this is the king you want. You want someone who's powerful enough to do the things you need them to do. And you want someone who's always going to use that power for good. Not to tread you down, not to abuse you, not to hurt you, but to bless you. That is the kind of king he is. Before we move on, this is, I think, one of the big reasons our praise gets stuck. Why we just don't feel like we can praise, either in church or over coffee or when we're speaking to our neighbor in the week. Because we don't see his glory. We don't grasp his goodness. We don't get a big enough picture of that he is worthy. Maybe we've taken our eyes off him, off the cross, off the proof of God's greatness and his goodness. The big point of this psalm is see how great he is, how good he is. And praise him. And just in case you think that's a kind of joyless act. A duty you have to go through. It's not. And I hope we're seeing this in this series as we go through. That to praise God is not just something you have to do but you don't like. When you appreciate something, praising it is not a chore. Heather and I went out for a meal um, last year. And it was the fanciest meal we've ever been out for by far. And I have told so many people about that meal about the different courses that were brought out and how the the strange and wonderful things we had to use to eat this food with. Things I would never, ever make at home and, you know, probably will never taste for another 10 years. 
I'd love to tell you about it. When you appreciate something, you complete your enjoyment of it by sharing that, by speaking about it. Maybe at a football match. When do you enjoy that more? Is it when you're just sitting there silently? Not saying anything? Or is it when you're singing with the crowd? Shouting when your team scores? Holding in praise. It's like holding in a sneeze. It's frustrating. It wants to be let out. When we praise God, our joy is completed. It reaches its fulfillment. The command to praise God is the command to maximize our joy, our enjoyment in him by declaring how good he is. And maybe as you've just seen the first half of the psalm, how great and how good God is, maybe you felt that inside, just something that needs to be let out. We'll come back to that and what that will look like. That's the first half, God's greatness and his goodness. Now the second half is about how God relates to us, more briefly. Firstly, verses 13 to 16, his constant provision for us. That the Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. Now, that word faithful, um, we get a bit confused about that word as well. We'll say things as Christians like, oh, God, God has been so faithful this week. And what we mean is, he's done something that I like. That's not what the word faithful means. When you're faithful to a partner or faithful to a promise, it means you're sticking by something that you've said. God keeps his promises, as Jonathan said earlier. So what has he promised? Well, in these verses, it says he's promised to look after and provide for everything he's made. Verse 15 says, everything looks to you, everything depends on you. And at the right time, in the right season, you give it its food. You open your hand and you bless it. And see how big and wide this promise is. Verse 14, he upholds all who fall. Verse 15, the eyes of all look to you. Verse 16, you satisfy every living thing. I think David's got in mind here, in Genesis 8 and 9, when Noah comes out of the ark. And God makes a covenant, a binding promise, not just with Noah, but with everything. With the birds and the animals and the ground, the whole of creation saying, I will not destroy this again, but I will sustain it. I will provide for it. And here David says, you open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. God continually, constantly is providing for his world, for everything in it, including for us. Now, what what does that matter? Why am I making a big deal of this? It matters a lot if you think your life goes on with no interaction with God. If you think the world is just kind of governed by natural processes, the laws of science, every day the world goes round and your life carries on and God has nothing to do with it. David is saying there's, there's something else there. And if you ever get a sense that there's something beyond the natural world or behind it, it's because there is, there's someone there. The processes and the the laws of the natural world, that's just how God acts. That's how he chooses to act. That's why they're orderly and predictable. That's why things like maths and physics and science match up to the natural world. David is saying, behind all of that, there is a God who opens his hands to bless what he has made. So as you eat your food, he's opening his hand to feed you. As you take each breath, he's expanding your lungs. As you sleep, he keeps your heart beating. He's saying there's nothing and no one that is not completely, fully, hopelessly, helplessly dependent on God being faithful. His constant provision. If you're not a Christian, can I just invite you to consider that? Maybe to realize that you might be in somebody else's space. 
that maybe everything you have is actually from the kindness of God. And if it is, then to acknowledge him and take steps to get to know him. That's something that we love to help you with as a church. Or if you're a Christian, your praise is stuck. Maybe for you, you need to just see more of God's daily kindness. This is why we sometimes will say grace at mealtimes. The other day I was kind of doing chores around the house and feeling a bit grumpy about it. And this stopped me. It made me think, no, I, I need to thank God for these clothes that I'm carrying to the washing machine. And the washing machine that is there. And how he provides for me in every little area of my life. It's constant provision. But David moves on, so he will. How he relates to us. His loving presence. I wanted to call this his intimate protection. But that sounded too much like deodorant. So I went for loving presence instead. And it begins almost the same as the last section. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. And it looks kind of similar. But there are two differences. Firstly, that first section was about all, all creatures, everyone. Now it's all who. All who call on him, all who fear him, all who love him. The last section was something that was true by default, just existing. This is something that you opt into, something you do something about. Second, it's describing a way of relating with God that is much closer, much more intimate. It's a relationship where he's near, verse 18. He's not far off. Verse 19, where he fulfills your desires. He hears you and he answers. Verse 20, relationship where he watches over you, where he protects you, where he guards you. It's like the difference between um, just going and feeding the ducks in the park and adopting a child. And taking responsibility for that child's care and well-being. God himself, his unfathomable greatness beyond creation becomes a loving, close, watchful presence for our good. Again, if you're not a Christian, it's not just about being in God's space and him providing for you. There's an invitation there to something deeper, more wonderful, closer. Not just to be a creature, but a child. To know God. But I want to pause on this because this is where the psalm starts to get away from us. And we start to realize it's a bit too big. Then we saw in verse 20 those words. He watches over those who love him, but the wicked he destroys. And that kind of lodges in your brain and goes, ooh, I wasn't expecting that. Verse 17, we see, it says God is righteous. And you, if you think about that, righteousness is tied with justice. And justice means punishing, wrongdoing, and getting rid of it. If you were eagle-eyed, you might have seen in verse 10, he talks about the faithful people. And you might have thought, is, who's that? Is that me? Am I one of the faithful people? Does that describe me? Let's play a little game of where am I in this psalm? This relationship in these verses, who gets it? It's those who call on him. Well, yeah, I could call on God, but call on him in truth, with sincerity, who don't say, help me, I'll never do that again, and then go and do it again. Or those who fear him, those who take him seriously. Is that me? Do I really take God seriously? Do I, in every area of my life, have him central? Or those who love him? I love lots of things. I love many of them often more than God. Do I love money more than God? My family? My comfort? So where are we? Well, as you read this, I think you get the suspicion that I'm at the second half of verse 20. The wicked he will destroy. Those are the options he gives. Those who love him or the wicked. Now you might be convincing. I think I'm, I'm not wicked. But if it's true that this is God's space. This is God's world. To reject that relationship would be wicked, wouldn't it? I'm not, not going to let you sit in my house. 
and eat my food and drink my beer or my whiskey actually but you know that's not the point watch my tv and then change the locks and try and keep me out i'm not not, not going to let you do that that's not okay you can't just sit in god's world and in his space and enjoy his stuff and try and keep him locked out of your life and accept him to be okay with that surely that would be wicked verse 20 says all the wicked he will destroy and the bible says that's all of us everyone in this room and so we start listening out for Jesus' voice singing this psalm. This is written by him, for him, and about him. He is Bruce Springsteen, filling the stadium. He's Pavarotti. It's his song, it's not ours. That's why it feels too big for us. But the wonderful thing is, in his kindness and his mercy, he brings us into this song. So we've talked about the cross, and what happened there was Jesus took our place. He traded with us. He became the wicked to be destroyed. He dealt with our insincerity, our fakeness, our failure, all of our living in his space and spitting in his face. He took it all. And some of you need to receive that again this morning, that whatever happened this week or last month or 20 years ago, it's dealt with. As we sang earlier, it's as far as the east is from the west. You're over there. It's over there. That has how, what Jesus has done on the cross. But it's not just that. Jesus fills the role that we can't fill. He sings the song that we can't sing. He's the one who can praise eternally because he's eternal. He's the one who can be God's faithful people. He's the only sincere, God-loving, God-fearing worshipper. And like the little girl at that concert, he picks us up and he puts us on his shoulders so that all the blessings he deserves come to us. So if you're not a Christian, God doesn't require you to reach a standard to pass a test. You don't need to be able to sing this song before you come to Jesus. You just have to realize you need him and hold up a little sign saying, Jesus, help me. Bring me into that relationship. And with Jesus, we can sing it. Verses 1 and 2, we can say, I will praise him forever and ever because Jesus has overcome my frailty. He's defeated my death. So I will praise him forever. Verse 10, I can be his faithful people. Verses 18 to 20, you can read it and just put you into it. The Lord is near to you. He fulfills your desires. He hears your cry and saves you. The Lord watches over you. Now, some of you, you're kind of bringing all sorts of uncertainty and all sorts of fear and unsettledness. Maybe the future is blank. Maybe there are changes coming and they scare you. If you're a Christian, you need to know you are sitting on Jesus' shoulders. And so these are not just words in the psalm. These are God's covenant, unbreakable promises to you. He's promised to be near you. He's promised to hear you. He has promised to watch over you. And he's not forgotten. He doesn't need persuading. He doesn't need you to twist his arm. If you're afraid, he's promised to watch over you and be near you. If you're alone, he's promised to be with you. If you're bowed down under the weight of life, he has promised to lift you. Don't leave those promises lying around like an uncashed check in a drawer somewhere. Come to God confidently. Picture yourself on Jesus' shoulders, united to him. His faithfulness means you get the blessings he deserves. Let's think about us as a church. It's a time of uncertainty for us and change. We're going to be appointing a new lead pastor. 
And it makes you think, well, who's that going to be? What will they be like? What will the church be like in six months, in a year, in ten years? And it's tempting to think, well, it's all on their shoulders. And as long as they're a good person, it'll be, it'll be fine. Everything will be great. But we've seen people we put our hope in, they disappoint us. We hope it'll be a good person, but he's not going to be the king that we need. But we do have a king, David says, a king who is unfathomable in his greatness, incorruptible in his goodness, constant in his provision, loving in his presence. And we, a city church, we sit on his shoulders and his faithfulness guarantees our future. So we come to him and we trust him with the future. And David says, knowing all of this, praise him. That's, that's the big point of this psalm. Praise God. Some of the words David uses, exalt him, extol him, tell of him, recount his deeds, sing aloud, meditate on them, pour out. Where that means kind of bubbling up and over, overflowing as you see how good and great he is. The psalm just says, see his goodness and his greatness. See Jesus bringing you into all of that, his promises for you. And declare how good he is. What will this look like this week? Well, it happens very shortly in corporate worship. As we sing together. It's one of the reasons that we sing as God's people. It lifts us. It lifts others, those around us. And so as you're singing, can I encourage you, give yourself to it. It's not just a filler. It's not just to fill the gap between this and the next thing. It's us completing our joy in God by expressing it. It's us declaring God's praise. It's to maximize our enjoyment of him. It happens in family conversation. And here I mean the church family, us. The kind of thing we do after the service, over coffee, in the week, as we speak to one another. Talk about the goodness of God. Remind one another. Now, especially you know, if you're British, you're not very good at this. But we must do it. David says in the psalm, generations tell one another. So... Please tell my children that God is good and great and faithful. They need to hear it. If you're older in this church, tell the people who are younger than you that God is faithful and good and he still will be in 20 years, in 30 years, and it's worth sticking with him. We praise God as we tell one another what he's like. It happens in evangelism. As we praise God to people who don't know him. That doesn't mean having to know everything. doesn't mean having to have all the answers Get a bit clammed up and think, oh, I need to know everything. No, you don't. You just need to praise God to someone else. Just to say, Jesus is real. I know him and he's great. And if you get a chance to say a bit more, here's what he's done for me. If you get a chance to say a bit more, he can do that for you too. Just praising God to other people. I was challenged recently to ask God every day for a chance to praise him to somebody else. And it happens as well when we praise God in prayer. I know that prayer can be a kind of a list here. I ask for this, 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 this. And we should ask God for things that honors him. But maybe this week, if you're not in the habit, take just a couple of minutes before you ask God for anything, just to pray wow prayers. To praise him for his works in creation, for his works in salvation, for his goodness to you. And then just see how that spills out, how that bubbles over in the day. So as we finish, how can you maximize your joy in God this week? David says, Jesus is great. He's good. He's worthy of praise. I just want us to finish with that picture of, in our minds, of us sitting on Jesus' shoulders, taking these words on our lips. Maybe we can read this last verse together. That's not too weird. Can we read this all together? And we'll finish with this. This is the last verse of Psalm 145. 
My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we have so many reasons to praise you. Thank you for your unfathomable goodness, your incorruptible goodness. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you bring us into that relationship. Thank you that because we're in you, those wonderful promises are ours. And we get to receive your incredible grace. So please unstick our hearts. Unstick our praise. Flood our beings with your goodness and your greatness. Release our tongues as we sing, as we speak to each other, as we go into this week and tell other people. Declaring your glory in our workplaces, in our families, our friendships. Please give us a greater view of your glory so that our praise might grow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.